Thank you for stopping by. In today's message, Pastor Tony begins working through the Gospel of John. I hope this message encourages you to read through John and follow along as we exposit the truth of the Word of God. I want you guys with me to turn to the book of John, the Gospel according to John. I have been doing, as you know, I've been doing a lot of soul searching, and I've been doing a lot of uh, learning. And in this quest of understanding, I guess, I, uh, I had a meeting with a friend of mine who was a pastor as well, and he asked me a question. And I never asked myself this question. He said, because I like to read. If you guys don't know this, I love reading and I love history. So the two kind of go hand in hand with church. Um, There's a lot of historical uh, documents about our faith and about uh, the confessions and orthodox teachings and the things that the church has been through in the last 2,000 years and then some. Um, It's very interesting. But in in the reading I've done, he asked me this question. He says, have you ever read a book on preaching? And I thought that was an odd question. Like, who sets out to read a book on preaching? And it, it kind of set me off, and it kind of took me aback. And one of the things I realized that I have been preaching just kind of hip fire over these last few years and the better part of the last decade. And in that, he challenged me to exposit preaching. And what that means is, we are going to go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, and pull from it what the truth of the Scriptures have for us. I'm not going to go topical. I'm not going to try to say, I want to preach a sermon on hope, and then look at verses that pertain to hope, and just kind of try to formulate it that way. What I am going to do, starting this morning, is we're going to look at the gospel according to John, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, and pull out from the text what John has explicitly laid before us, and what he is meaning when he is speaking about the gospel. I'm excited. And I hope you are as well, because it means that I have to, to, I'm going to be forced to preach on things that are uncomfortable, things that I purposefully darted around in the past. Whether you like it or not, it's scripture. And so I'm going to let God take the reins. And I'm going to start going through verse by verse, and we're going to hit this through. Um, I, will, I will tell you, as I was preparing this, I wanted to get through John 1, 1 through 18, but I only got through verse 5. Ah. So we're in for a treat and a very long journey. And I hope it, as I am going through this, it has been a blessing to me, and I hope it blesses you as well. Um, I'm not here to give you knowledge. I'm here to call you to action. And I, I think the difference between a teacher and a preacher is a teacher gives you head knowledge, gives you understanding, and a preacher calls you to action. So I'm not going to teach you. I'm going to preach to you a message that I hope that God's word illuminates something within you that calls you to repentance, that calls you to action because of what you have just heard. That is my prayer. And as we move through this, I I believe that God will do that. So if you would, we're starting in John 1, verse 1. I'm not going to read that just yet. I got 
That was my, my precursor to. That's like the forward in a book. Any of you readers, the, the forward to? Um, but here we are, chapter one, verse one, page one, right? This is where we're at. Um, have you, how many of us has ever trained for a marathon? Anyone trained for any long distance running or just had to because you were forced to run three miles for some promotional purposes? I know that that last part was very specific to my time in the military, but um, I had to train for it nonetheless. Uh, I'm not one who enjoys running in the least bit. I loathe it. I abhor it. Abhor it. I've never understood how to say that word. I abhor running. I do not like it. I do not enjoy it. My, my legs aren't built for it. I am not a small guy. For me to run, it takes a lot of energy. Okay? I would go on a limb to say that anybody who actually really enjoys running needs to have their head examined but that's just uh, uh, my interpretation of the world, right? But at any rate, we are all running towards or away from something in our life. We are always running towards a goal or away from a, a hurt or trauma. We're running towards or away from something. And as Christians, we are running that race that Paul describes in his second letter to Timothy in verses 4 or Chapter 4, verse 6, I'm going to read this real quick. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. You have to understand, Paul is coming to the end of his life. He's saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Who's ever heard this before, right? Uh, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is coming to the end of his life, and he describes that he has been running this race. Christians, beloved, church, we are running a race. However, some of us today are running this thing, we're wore out. We are tired. Others have already quit, and they're sitting, and they're waiting, and watching other people run the fight, run that run, run that race. Some of us are even sitting, waiting for the right motivation to even begin to run at all. Whatever the case may be, be it depression, anxiety, laziness, fear, we need to run. And we must run with the proper pace and motivation. One of the things that I, as I look back, it's so funny. When I would run my three miles for my fitness test, my PFTs, I would run the first two so slow, almost lazily. And then guess what? When it would come to the last mile, I would hit that thing on a dead sprint. Hated running. So I did a least amount of effort until I absolutely had to run. <laughs> It wasn't the most effective way, and anyone who runs any long distance knows what happens when you run it this way. When I would cross, as soon as I crossed that finish line, I would violently evict from my stomach anything that I ate the night before. I had a buddy after one run, he would tell me, he's like, you know, if you would just pace yourself, run consistently, you wouldn't die when you cross that line. It wouldn't kill you after you're done running. You would not feel as terrible, as awful as you would the way you were currently doing it. Consistently going as hard as I was able to, to run a good race. Man, that alone in itself preaches. 
But it's not about my words or my understanding. We'll get there. Some of us here today, we're taking it easy. We're being lazy in our walk. We are being lazy in our run. Some of us aren't even running at all. We're, we're watching other people run the race for us, thinking that if we just go hard at the end, then that will be enough. There was a, I can't remember what they called it, but it was a, a heretical teaching in the early church in the, in the first and second century church where they would say that as Christians, you can do whatever you want because the grace of love of God has come and enabled you and set you free from the law. Therefore, you can do whatever you want in life. And you can serve him at the end of your life. And this is something that it seems ridiculous, right? And that's something that's easy and quick, that, and it's easy to see why the church snuffed that out and said no. But about 20 years ago, there was a popular church youth group movement. I can't remember the guy. I heard this message when I was in high school. who preached something along the lines of, you don't have to submit to the authority of God. You just have to submit to the love of God. And at the time, it sounded good because me and my sinful state and my, my fleshly state wants that to be true because our sin nature is con- con- consistently at war with God. And so my flesh wanted that to be true, saying that I can party, I can drink, I can do the fun things, I can go have a good time. I'll have, I'll have later to submit to God's authority. That's so false. That's so wrong. It's not a consistent running of God's faithful. If you think right now by taking it easy, by being a pinch, a a pew bench warmer, and then waiting until you're on death's door to begin making a change for Christ and his glory and his kingdom, that is not going to cut it. I want to challenge that premise. I, and I believe that we, if we are consistent in our walk, if we are consistent in our race that we are running, I believe, and I, I have found it true to be within myself, that we find greater joy in Christ. Not in our circumstances, but in Christ. So how do we find consistency in our race? The best way we have to find the right motivator, why are we running? Who is the motivation for what we are doing? When I was in the Marine Corps, you know why I ran? Not even for promotion, but because if I didn't, I would be in trouble. I was running out of fear. First verse of John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you would, let me pray. Father God, speak to your people today. Speak to your children. Call yours into yourself. Call yours to the foot of the cross. Call yours by name, through your word. God, I pray that as we look at this challenge, that we would leave enlightened. God, that we would leave changed. Speak to your people. Amen.
I love John and how he writes. He writes so poetically and how he just, he just, he doesn't speak around truths. One of the things that Jesus did in, in parables is Jesus, he didn't want to just say, this is the truth, right? He would speak parables, kind of speak around the, the truth of what it is so that people could themselves come to an understanding of what Jesus was talking about, which is oftentimes why we see the disciples not getting what Jesus was saying. Have you ever just like read through and like, how did you not get this? Why are you so dumb, right? Because we have the end of the story you know, we, we know what happens. And so for us, we can read that into the text, but for the disciples, but that was very popular back then. They, they, they spoke in parables and stories so that when people could, when they came to the proper understanding, it was like, oh my gosh, it makes so much more sense to me. Rather than having someone tell you the answer, telling how you come to the answer, you learn things much better. Jesus knew this. But John, as he is writing here, is he is setting a framework like, okay, I have to establish some foundational points so that you can understand the rest of what I'm about to say. And so he is setting those foundations of who is Jesus. We have this term in theology called Christology, which is a fancy word. It just means the theology of who is Christ, who is Jesus. From Scripture, who do we know that Jesus is? And so we're going to examine that theological concept this morning in the first uh, John 1 uh, as we move through this, and we understand that Christ is and can only be the true motivator in our walk, not our eternal security. If you're coming to church, if you're reading the Bible just for a get-out-of-jail-free card, it will fail. It will not work, right? It is not for our family. If you're um, coming into church and listening and reading, it's a good thing but our motivations have to be proper, has to be right, okay? If you're coming to church just for your family, it will fail. If you're coming to church, if you're doing this thing, if you're running this race for your being a good employer or having a good job, it's not gonna work. Or if, even if you're coming here just to be more righteous than you once were, it will not work. It will fail. And you will not properly run the race as Paul described. It is for Christ. It has to be for, by, through, and only for the glory of Christ. That is why we come. That is why we worship. Church is not about getting something to tickle your ears. It's about coming and glorifying the Father in heaven through the Son, Jesus Christ. That is what church is. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it constantly. The church is not for the unsaved. I encourage you, invite your friends to church okay? But there's a work that must happen before they come here so that they understand what is happening here. The church is for fellowship of the believers. Coming here, it must be for Christ. If you're running your, your, your race and your faith and your walk with Christ, it has to be for Him, not for anything that you benefit. And so this morning, I want us to examine the text here in John and understanding or expand our understanding of who is Jesus. We all have an idea of who Jesus is. Time Magazine says he's one of the top 100 most influential people of all time. 
They just released it. I agree with that statement because you, even if you agree with the, the religion of Christianity, you have to agree that Jesus came and he, dis, he, he did something. Because here's this man 2,000 years later that we're still talking about. There's a book, I can't remember the name of it, but it was written by an investigative uh, detective who sat out to do an investigative work on this person, Jesus, and through that, he got saved. And it's amazing looking at it from an investigator's point of view and studying the evidence, putting the case together. He's a a detective, and it's really cool how he writes it and how he goes through it. And I've I've read snippets and excerpts of it, and uh, that's one of the books I'm going to be reading. I'm challenging myself to read two books a month this next year, and that's one that's on my list for that. But When we are examining who is Jesus, we have to understand that it's more than just a person. It's more than just a person who lived. It's more than these things because we have this text here uh, that, that John explicitly calls out who Jesus is, what he did, and what he was about. And so as we look at who is Jesus, who is Jesus to you? Because it isn't just about Jesus. It's about Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. There's another book that was written a few years back about like uh, Christ isn't Jesus's last name, almost mocking and ridiculing the, the Western evangelical church because we say Jesus Christ as one. It's like, well, no dip. We don't think that his last name was Christ. That's his title. Christus is Latin for Messiah. That's his title. It's like Tony Green. No, Green isn't my title. The title of Christ is Messiah. So as we are examining this text here, as we're looking at it, we're looking at Jesus not as a person, but as Christ. Because I have a friend in the Marine Corps. His name was Jesus. We said, yeah, Jesus lives. He's, he works in Fly D. We, it was be a joke. Like we have to understand that it's more than just a person, that this person that we are worshiping, that the, the, this work is the Christ. It elevates his position. So we're going to be examining here, breaking this down a little bit, and I'm excited. Uh, first point I wanted to make here, uh, there's, there's how many? I got six points of what John is, uh, what he's writing here. But in point one, he starts this out, uh, in the beginning was the word. That's his very first point. And it's no coincidence that John here is hearkening back to Genesis 1. John starts his gospel off the same way the Bible starts off, in the beginning, What better point to start than the beginning? And so he's saying, in the beginning, Jesus is eternal. He's elevating Jesus to a time before creation. By stating that the word was in the beginning, Jesus uh, is absolute in his existence. In other words, that before the creation of the world, Jesus was already Matthew's gospel focuses on human genealogy that through the promised line came Jesus, and John now is focusing on the supernatural claim and aspect of Christ. The claim that Jesus is before creation asserts his divine nature and sets Jesus apart from all other spiritual leaders of any other religion. Jesus could not be God in the flesh if he was not God. There's a lot of weird stuff, even 
finding its way into the church about Jesus' divinity. Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's all these other cult-like groups that get their, their focus wrong because they don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity. They don't believe that Jesus, fully God, fully human, that works. And so they, they demean the divinity. And if you go to John 1, 1, it clearly states that Jesus was before creation. And the only thing that existed before existence was God. Philosophically, that makes more sense than what are you trying to say? Just think through the logic path. Jesus could not be God in flesh. He could not be Savior if he was not God. The second point I want to make, Jesus is the Word. See, the word here is translated from the the Greek logos. In Greek, this term is simply reason or logic. In ancient philosophy, the term was used to express order or harmony within things. I love this. John's not doing anything by accident here. He's saying explicitly that the order and harmony of creation is Christ, is Jesus. Not only is Jesus before creation, he is the the thing by which creation holds order. That the logic and reason are truly Jesus's to dictate and to hold. In short, Jesus's logic and by nature logical. That's just one one. There was a lot going on. In the beginning was the Word. The second part of that, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We have Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the Word. He is logic and reason. Jesus is God. The Trinity is probably one of the hardest things in Christianity to wrap your head around. I mean, who here has got a perfect understanding and concept in their brain about what the Trinity is. You need to write a book if you do, because we were, we're all waiting to hear. It is the most difficult concept in Scripture, in all of Christendom, to understand. Some believe that it's like this equation, one plus one plus one equals one, but that fails uh, to, to give the full... Qualif- it fails to distinctly qualify God's unity and his diversity. It's an easy thing for you to try to pretend to understand. Yeah, he's three in one, right? Uh, no, God is one essence in three persons. This is hard to understand, but even harder to disprove. That's why I love when God's truths come out and people are like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, yeah, if it doesn't make sense, then beat it. Then beat it. You can't. Scripturally, you cannot. Just because you don't understand 
Paul says that the mystery of God's will has been revealed, but the, 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 the standard by which God's will is applied is not revealed. Right? We, we know God's will, we just don't know how he goes about carrying it out. There's a lot of concepts within Scripture that many of us don't understand and we can't understand because as my child doesn't know how to start my car, doesn't mean that they can't figure it out when they're ready. There's concepts and reasons that when we were children that we had no hope and understanding, right? But as we got older, more mature, we learned a little bit more things. We learned about how things operate and how nature works and how things happen. Therefore, as we grew up and we learned, then those things were made known to us. The same is true in our Christian walk. Too many of us are spending too much time in toddler diapers that we're not taking. There hasn't been enough mature mentors guiding these toddlers up to teach them how to handle the truth of the scriptures. And so just because you don't understand it, doesn't make it not so. There's concepts and reasons that we have to be mature in our faith to be able to understand. This is one of those things. God is one essence and three persons, hard to understand, hard to disprove. The Reformation Study Bible's notes on this trinity states it like this. The term person doesn't mean a distinction in essence, but a different subsistence. Subsistence is a a fancy word for existence, right? It's a different existence in the Godhead. Subsistence in the Godhead is a real difference, but not an essential one in the sense of a difference in being. Each person subsists or exists under the pure essence of deity. Subsistence in a difference is a difference within the scope of being, not a separate being or essence. All persons in the Godhead have the attributes of deity. Who knows what that's saying? That's a bunch of fancy jargon there, but I'm going to summarize it because the first time I read this, it took me probably 45 minutes to kind of pick this apart and understand what's being said. So you, I know you all like hanging out with me, but you don't want to be here until 4 a.m. or 4, Yeah, 4 a.m. tomorrow. Anyway, Each person of the Trinity exists within the same essence, and each has its own unique role within the group, within the Trinity. So when we see God the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit the Helper, they are one God, three persons, three roles, three purposes. One divine essence. We see God speaking the word in creation, and through Jesus the word, he carries it with the action. Jesus fulfills the will of God. God is the Father. Jesus is the Son fulfilling the will of the Father, and the Spirit is coming in after the Son to help us broken and infallible human beings take action from Jesus' fulfillment. Anyone still confused? I kind of am, so it's okay. I'm in there with you. So Jesus is the acting member of the will from the Father. Isn't that beautiful? Because when you understand Jesus in this way, you see him acting on the will of God all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament and even in our own lives.
The fourth thing I want us to understand here is that Jesus is life giver. I think it's verse three, right? Can you go to the next slide? I, I, for some reason, I forgot to put, like, <laughs> which one? Uh, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and him was life. As God spoke, through Christ, things were created. Life was brought forth from the will of God by the one who fulfills that will. Colossians says it in this way in verses uh, 16 and 17 of Colossians 1. I love, if, if you've, here's another quick letter epistle in the New Testament you can read in one sitting. Uh, Colossians is very beautiful. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, speaking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you want to start another religion refuting the divinity and the deity of Jesus, you have to remove Colossians. You have to remove John. You have to remove entire subsections of the scriptures because they all point and prove and self-affirm that Jesus, being God, is the one who holds life within himself. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. I love this. Verse John, uh, or verse 10 of John 1 reads it this way. We'll get there eventually, but uh, I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus is life giver. Yes, he gives life to those who would defame him. Yes, he gives life to the ones who would crucify him. Yes, he gives life for those who would call on any other God but him. You have to understand the full measure. When we talk about what's the love of God, the love of God is that Jesus Christ, the son of God, was given to people who would deny him and reject him in spite of their sin. In spite of their rejection, Jesus still holds them together. General love. You have to understand, God doesn't love me, therefore he lets me do whatever I want. No, God loves me because he allows me to breathe his air. That's the general love. In the world, the world is made through him, yet the world did not know him. The fifth point, Jesus is light. It goes on to say, in the light of the life was the light of men. Jesus is the life, and the life was the light of men. Not only is Jesus the one by which creation is held, he is also the one by which salvation is granted. Giver of physical life and giver of spiritual life. The Bible is full of passages that give light to this truth. I love uh, John 14, 6. I made a hoodie with this on the back of it because if there is any question of how it takes, what it takes to get to heaven, Jesus plainly says, and it's, this is, if you have one of those Bibles, it's written in red. He says, I am the way and the truth 
in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sorry, Catholics, Mary's doing nothing. She's dead. I'm sorry, Buddhists, but your Buddha doesn't work. Uh, Muslims, Muhammad, he's dead, long and gone, and he was a a crazy person. Uh, Joseph Smith for the Mormons, guess what? Very bad person. Very bad guy. The list goes on and on and on. There was no name under heaven. I'm jumping ahead, okay? Uh, Acts 4, verse 11 says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. If you can think of one, it's wrong. doesn't exist. You see that coexist bumper sticker? By this and this alone, that bumper sticker, if that is on anyone who claims Christ's car, they're not saved. You cannot call yourself a Christian and think that there is any other way that somebody might find some sort of hope for tomorrow. You can't think there is any other way that somebody can find some sort of salvation, some sort of peace, some sort of anything, and anything other than Christ. But if you look around, all around you in the public sphere, you'll see different pastors wearing... I, was, I saw one the other day. Someone sent me a picture. It was kind of funny. It's like, uh, I'm in this meme group, and I love the internet because of memes. They're funny. They're hilarious. And there's this group that is specifically creating memes about false teachers, heretics, apostates, the wolves in sheep's clothing. And one of them says, once you finally defeated the final heretic, the heretic, here is the, the, the final boss you must defeat before going to heaven. And they had a picture of an Episcopalian priest with the RGBT flag on this side, or LGB, this isn't lighting. LGBTQAI plus whatever two-spirited it's called now on this side, and every symbol of every world religion on this side standing in front of a pulpit. Universalism is the death of somebody coming to Christ. Now, Christ has full sovereignty and full power and authority to call them to himself still. But you wonder why our nation is being judged the way in which it is? There's uh, passage after passage where... I'm not going to go there. That's for another day. I don't want to speak too much of my own opinions into this. It is Christ and Christ alone. That is what we believe. That's what we teach. That's what I preach forever and always. Not even by yourself. You in and of yourself are never going to be good enough to come before the throne of the king and say, I deserve to be in heaven. There's no other person who can stand in your place. There's no other person by which one is redeemed. We sing this song, because he lives. We sing this song, I wanted to do Jesus paid it all, but we do that a lot because that's one of my favorite songs, because I will always go back to that. I will always go back to that. That is like my defining him, because to me, Jesus paid it all, therefore I can't, and I won't, and I don't have to. Because there I never could. First Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
What does this mean? What do these verses mean in context by what they are saying plainly? Simply that God is perfect, and in his righteousness, we as mere humans are imperfect by our flesh. God's righteousness is perfect. We are imperfect, and there we are no longer, uh, we are incapable, unable to become perfect. There's another movement making its rounds the last several decades called Christian perfectionism. It goes by the guise of holiness. What is holiness? They believe it's being able to be perfect and free from sin, being able within yourself to do enough works on this earth, enough chastisement, enough, hey, amen, hallelujahs, to to no longer be sinners. I used to buy into that idea to my detriment because 1 John tells us that anyone who claims he is without sin has no light in him. Jesus is the light, and the life is the light of men. John keeps that same message. You, you read John, you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, it's very similar. He, he doesn't vary. He's very consistent in his thought process. God is perfect. We are imperfect and incapable of coming to even half perfection, and we have no hope in ourselves to come before a holy God. Our sin makes it so that we cannot enter no matter how good we think that we are. Our sin keeps us from being able I'm spitting now, to enter in. Therefore, we need, as Timothy is reading in this letter from Paul, he says, we need the mediator. Jesus Christ to stand in that gap, to fill that void. Not so that we can walk across the bridge, but no, no, so that God doesn't see our righteousness because it is but filthy rags, so that God sees his righteousness. In Christ, which is perfect. On the cross, Jesus took the sin of those who would call on him and bore the wrath wrath that we deserved in our place. That is the gospel. Have you guys ever had a hard time putting together into words what is the gospel? What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus took the wrath that was deserved for me. You take wrath out of it, there's no need for the news because what is the punishment? See, life and light go hand in hand. Have you ever seen um, a plant growing? Not, not sitting there like staring at it, but as you, as you put this seed in the ground, anyone had a garden, what does it take to get that seed to come up out of the ground? Water, right? What's it take to get that seed to turn into a nice, mature, fruit-bearing plant? Light. Light and life go hand in hand. It is in this, in these concepts, that, that we understand the fullness of who Christ really is. I have no objections to these statements so far, correct? No one's objecting? If so, make your case. Because John in verses 1 through 4, uh, 1 through 3, has already made the case of who Christ is. And that case is this. It comes to this. Jesus is Savior. What does that mean? It's not just a bumper sticker. It's not just something we say. What does that mean? That means Jesus eternal. Jesus uh, the word. He is logic and reason. Jesus is God. He is light and he is life. What do these things mean? It means that in this, he is Savior. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Next slide, Wayne. 
Jesus Christ, sent by the Father into darkness to shine light of salvation and new life onto the dark hearts of men. Have you ever thought about this phrasing? Light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The original understanding of this term isn't necessarily overcome, but it is subdue. The, the dark has not subdued it. Have you ever overcome someone, like when you're driving a car, anybody ever not raced but drove and really fast on a highway, right? And you overcome somebody? You haven't really uh, subdued that person because they have the ability to overcome you again, right? So I don't really like the, the English understanding of that word, the original Greek that it was written in. I like the subdued understanding. To take captive. Because that means that no matter how, how hard the darkness tries, it cannot take captive the light of Christ. It cannot subdue, it cannot squash it, it can't put it into its box, it can't control it, it can't do anything with it. No matter how hard it tries, the light shines and the darkness can't subdue it. What's that saying to King James? Yeah. The dark can't comprehend it. It's amazing. When you put this together, when you put that thought together, when you put these five verses together, what do you get? You get Jesus Christ is Savior, eternal God. sent by the Father into darkness, shining light of salvation and new life onto the dark hearts of man. This phrasing is interesting. What happens if I was to block all these windows and turn the lights out? It would be dark. And then you flip that switch, what happens? It's no longer dark. That's not the image we're getting here. The image that we're getting here is that when Jesus enters into darkness, darkness is still there. Trying to overcome, trying to subdue, trying to comprehend. But John is suggesting that the dark desires to overcome it. In the original Greek, it says subdue. He's trying to subdue the light. But no matter how much it tries, it cannot. It is incapable. There's an Anglican theologian from... A long time ago, he puts his name is Westcott. He puts it this way: He says the word, the whole phrase is indeed a startling paradox. You guys know what a paradox is? It's the things that can't exist, right? Your brain just like it doesn't work, and it like turns into a puddle and falls out your ear. You guys ever seen those old commercials? This is your brain, and then they have showed scrambled eggs. Like this is your brain on drugs. You guys remember those from back in the day? That's your brain on a paradox. You're like, what? It just doesn't work. The light does not banish the darkness. This is Westcott. The light does not banish the darkness. The darkness does not overpower the light. Light and darkness coexist. They coexist in the world side by side. This is an interesting phrasing, isn't it? It is weird to think about. 
Because we like to preach of a conquering Jesus who just snuffs out the darkness. But you have to understand that Jesus is a saving light. And that light came to shine onto the, onto the dark hearts of man and women. That's just using the, the term man, okay? Got to clarify. I'm not a chauvinist. <laughs> we must understand that when we receive the light of Christ on this side of glory, sin is still there. Darkness is still there, beckoning, tempting, deceiving, fighting. The work of Christ does not banish the darkness from the world. It offers us a way to live within his light. The work of salvation offers us a chance to live within the light of Christ. We must daily choose to receive and accept that light. John writes, as he continues through the rest of this gospel from this book, he writes of a supernatural conflict between light and darkness. The struggle between faith and unbelief. This is the primary narrative of his gospel. You can't have it both ways. John, the beloved. I love how he calls himself the beloved apostle. The, the, the most the loved one, or the way he talks to himself. He, doesn't, he never says, I, John. He says, I, the beloved, or something like that. After spending so much time with Jesus, comes to the conclusion that either Jesus is a crazy person or he's right. And writes his gospel as if Jesus was correct in that understanding. So when we read the book of John, we have to read it as if somebody is trying to tell you to turn the lights on. The struggle between faith and unbelief. Where is your faith placed? Where is your motivator? Who is your motivator? What is Lord of your life? Have you guys ever tried to run in the dark? doesn't work so well. Turn the lights on. Father God, we... Again, thank you for being here. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to leave them in the comments section below or find us on Facebook at Church on Detroit.